You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Say something. Say something I never thought I would say. Maybe the wildest words that will come out of my mouth for all of 2021. <laughs> Not a chance. Kinda, I, well, I don't know. I think <laughs> I'm kind of starting to like Tom Brady. Wow. I know. That's what's happening to me. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. She's Sarah Spain. I'm Jason Fitz, and I'm telling you, they are partying in Tampa, rightfully so. They're out on a boat, hanging out. They got their ring. They got their ring brought to you by Macy's. They are celebrating like gods, but I'm telling you, there's something about this version of Tom Brady, as the world has seen on social media today, having a little bit of trouble walking after he gets off the boat, maybe maybe a little bit of <laughs> Sea legs, maybe TB12 didn't help him lay. Like, we all know, sir, if you're going to go party like that, you got to lay like the right foundation. You got to carve it up. You got to Michael Scott it from the office. You just got to get all the fettuccine Alfredo you can. Like, you got to make sure you are ready to go. I'm not sure he had that that proper foundation. And maybe, you know, the one and a half white claws he had had him sort of stumbling out of the, <laughs> out of the box. First of all, there will be no white claw slander on this year program. So you better have said that will, with love. love um, of course. Listen, I didn't mean to laugh at the idea that that would be the craziest thing you've said. I've just heard your food takes. So I don't want you to say something that will never pan out. I know you're going to say something weirder and dumber and stupider than that uh, very soon. But it is wild for you to say that you like Tom Brady. And I agree. Tom Brady uh, speaks mostly in cliches. He's made some really regrettable decisions in terms of friendships and the people that he advocates for. You could figure out who those people are yourself. So he's not always on the top of my list. But I have to admit, I like drunk Tom Brady. He is much more relatable. He's much more accessible. I like a guy who's chucking the Lombardi from boat to boat. I like a guy who could barely stand up, in part because I miss that. It's been a long time since I had any opportunity to throw down. And I kind of miss that feeling of needing someone to help me out. Um, I I do think he's probably a tremendous lightweight. We know how healthy he is. And how rarely he, he gets a chance to let loose. So, uh, you know, a couple brews and that's it in the hot sun. Uh, but talk about a recruiting video, Fitz. For anyone in the league, if you didn't already think I'd like to go play in Tampa for the Bucks, a team that just won a title, we have boat party celebrations. We have, like, no income tax. I get to play with the GOAT, and this doesn't look anything like the Patriots. Now, the Patriots had their own crazy duck boat celebrations, but this just hit different, and I feel like if you're watching this and you're a free agent, you're like, yeah, I want that. Oh, my God, yeah, and and you're right. Like, there's this moment of Tom that sort of reminds me of, you know, when you've got somebody in a couple that you didn't really like that person in the couple, then they get out of the relationship, and suddenly you're like, wow, maybe it was their ex that I didn't like. Maybe it's all this Belichick stuff that I've just been, <laughs> you know, displacing on Tom through all of this. And you, the, the staggering moment is seeing him obviously chuck the Lombardi trophy from one boat to another. I Googled it. According to the ever-accurate interwebs, it looks like Tiffany, as we all know, makes the Lombardi trophy. Uh, costs about fifty grand. So, you know, what's it like to you got to have like, you know, Giselle and Tom Brady money to be comfortable throwing a $50,000 trophy from one boat to another. So, you know, good good on Tom. Yeah, I think he could cover that if 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 things were to go wrong. And I don't know that the NFL would be that tough on him if they accidentally did let the trophy sink to the bottom of of Tampa Bay. Uh, But I'm just like, first of all, we know Gronk can throw down. I personally have seen Gronk throw down. I've thrown down alongside Gronk. It's no surprise that he was leading the way during the boat party. But for Bomb Trady, as I'm calling him for the rest of the day because he was drunge, 
for him to be leading this charge, for him to be flashing the number of rings that he has on the fingers and really like letting loose, it made it a lot more fun. It made it feel special, even though I'm not sure if they were following protocols and I'm pretty sure they were acting like COVID didn't exist. Uh, but for the rest of the day, I'm probably just going to be going to be humming this and thinking about how much I want to be in Tampa right now. Can you imagine the reality show where, you know, Tom Brady throws the Lombardi trophy into the water and you just see Tampa Bay fans from everywhere just trying to dive down there and get their own Lombardi trophy at some point? You're right, by the way. Also, a lot of images of Gronk partying with water, which always makes me nervous. Like I'm like, you know, what's in that <laughs> bottle? Because there's no way you're just hanging out on the boat. Maybe he was staying properly hydrated. It was a sunny, bright day in Tampa. Maybe he was staying properly hydrated. You're also right that I think it's an incredible recruiting opportunity when you see, you know, for all the championship parades you've ever seen, this one will stand out. It'll be remembered right. for a long well, time. Well, and they parade. already have, I was to say, they already have a song built in for the recruitment video. That was well, that was there we go. There we go. We running this. Let's go. That's it. That's it. I mean, By the way, we apologize. Our production crew was drinking with Tom Brady today, so they're just like a little, little slow on the uptake. <laughs> uh, they, too, were enjoying themselves today from afar. But, uh, yeah, you throw a little bit of that. I know it's not that current, but it's timeless. It's really oh. a timeless tune. First thing I thought of, plus everybody knows the words. You don't have to learn much. You just have That's to true. scream, I'm on a boat, repeatedly. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. I think Dak was watching, thinking to himself, <laughs> man, that would have been nice. I'd like to be, I'd like to be doing that right now. Dak is sitting back saying, you know what? I'm not on a boat. I'm in Dallas. And that's the other big story today as uh, we continue to try and figure out what the future looks like for the Cowboys and their quarterback. And, you know, Sarah, I think it's one of the more under-talked-about stories going into this. We've become so obsessed with Deshaun Watson, rightfully so. But let's acknowledge the fact that uh, right now there is nothing that necessarily keeps Dak in with Dallas. They'd have to franchise him again. They franchised him last year for about $31 million, so to franchise him again would cost a 20% upgrade, uh, uptick, I believe. So be about $36, $37 million they'd have to pay him. But, uh, you know, the other question is, will Dak even agree to that? You're a guy that just got a $31 million payday finally. Your bank account stacked. Are you willing to bet on another one-year contract if you can't work it out long-term? I think a lot of us are just presuming it works out. That doesn't feel like a very safe presumption to me. There's so many ways to try to attack how he might be feeling. There's, to your point, he finally got a big enough payday to feel like he can be flexible, hold out if he needs to, play on a smaller contract, hoping for bigger later if he needs to. Um, But that injury really affects what he might be thinking. Is he thinking to himself, you know, I have to take whatever long-term deal I can get as close to what I'm looking for as possible because if I'm not any good this season and I go on a one-year deal, I go on the franchise tag, and I come out of that looking for a job and people know I I don't have it anymore, right? Or does he say to himself, because I'm coming back off this injury um, and they're not going to be willing to give me, I'm going to go out and prove I still got it and get that big payday that I still think I deserve. There is such a gamble now for him. There was already a bit of a gamble, but we all were sort of looking at the statistics and saying he would be able to successfully argue his worth. Now all of that is dependent on what he looks like when he comes back. And when you're talking about a compound fracture and dislocation of an ankle, which is the right ankle, uh, but up to that point, he was playing so incredibly well on that one-year deal. It looked in the moment like Dak was going to cash in on everything. I just don't know, to your point, where his – 
mental aspect of all of this is. Is he wanting something short or long? And he's not speaking about any of it. So uh, we don't know. I, I think it's just it's a tough presumption to think that he's just going to decide that a one-year deal is something he's comfortable with. At the same time, he just made 31. If he knows he's going to get 36 guaranteed, there's worse things than walking away saying, well, I made basically, what, 67, $68 million over two years guaranteed. Like, that. that's that's pretty good money. Like, I can, I can see both sides of it for Dak. But I think that any concept that whatever's happening in the rest of this quarterback market, that Dak isn't paying attention and the Cowboys aren't paying attention also, would be foolish. Because well, and – and what the conversations have been between him and the Cowboys throughout all of this, pre-injury and post, uh, that probably plays a big factor as well. Yeah, absolutely. ESPN Radio presented by Progressive Insurance, making it easy to bundle your home and car insurance. If things are dysfunctional in Dallas, there are two teams that are saying, hold my beer, we can do way better than that. Dysfunction Junction will break down two of the most dysfunctional teams in all of sports next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Presented by Progressive Insurance, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Let's get to some straight talk, Sarah. Brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. And it comes in the form of dysfunction. We were just talking about how difficult it must be right now in Dallas for everybody to figure out what's going on. But no matter what's going on between Dak Prescott and the Cowboys, that is just absolutely the appetizer in the state of Texas for what's going on in Houston when it comes to everything with the Texans. Now, we've talked a lot about Deshaun Watson and the fact uh, that he absolutely wants out at this point, uh, at least according to reports, he's demanded a trade, and uh, we'll see what it means at this point for him actually moving on. But uh, that is not the only issue the Texans are facing as their team president, uh, Jamie Roots, has resigned. And this is a little bit unexpected for most of us. This comes back to a name that we've heard a lot. It comes back to some conversation about Jack Easterby. So Adam Schefter was on Greeny with Mike Greenberg earlier, and uh, he talked about basically the sense within the Texans organization as everybody tries to figure out what's happening. There are a lot of people that want out of there. Okay? Deshaun Watson wants out of there. The president of the team, Jamie Roots, wanted out of there. Mm -hmm. There's a clear message that's coming from there with people who are there. They want out. Now, the people who are new, they don't. David Cole will tell you what a great organization is. Nick Casario will tell you what a great organization it is. But if they're being honest, they're wondering what the hell is going on here. Hmm. If they're being honest. Because everybody else is. Yeah. I mean, I would be too. If I had just arrived, there'd be a part of me that would be loyal to those who hired me and enthusiastic about the opportunity. If I'm Cully... You know, if I'm Casario, I'm getting the opportunity to hold these jobs that I want. So I'm coming in optimistically and perhaps giving the benefit of the doubt to those in charge who are hiring me. Unfortunately, those who have been around, including Roots, who's been there for 20 years, are saying, uh, I'm not sticking around for this tenure with this guy. We saw the story, Fitz, a couple months ago, the expose on Jack Easterby that compared him to a Game of Thrones character in terms of ambition manipulation, uh, the desire for power. You look at all the people, the director of football administration, the equipment manager, the communications department head, who everybody, after she was fired, was shocked and couldn't believe it. Everybody that she worked with loved her. They, 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 they're going to lose Watson, and now they lose their president. And I have to, I don't mean this lightly. Does Jack Easterby have pictures of somebody? <laughs> is, right is what's going on at the top 
that he comes in and they seem to be letting him do what he will, regardless of the effect it has on this team, this team's reputation, and this team's ability to hang on to talent. Well, and, and at some point you've got to look at the, the ownership situation, right? Like Cal McNair is in charge of everything now, and uh, he is technically the vice chairman and chief operating officer. Uh, but at this point, you know, he inherits this from his dad, uh, and as he starts the, to take over, it all is reflective of him. And even the, some of the tone-deaf statements where uh, the Texans continue just to say, hey, we're building forward and we're going to move forward and everything's going to be great. Well, Obviously, it's not. At some point, you've got to address the elephant in the room, which is Jack Easterby. And Jack Easterby is a name, frankly, most of us hadn't even heard of three or four months ago. And now, as there's a mass exodus out of town of everybody that seems to be involved with the organization, it feels like his name comes up every single time. At some point, you got to look in the mirror and mm-hmm. say, if the common thread that's forcing this is Jack Easterby, I don't want to lose everybody else. But you know what? I can afford to lose everybody behind the scenes if I have to. I can't lose Deshaun Watson. And every time I see one of these people behind the scenes that's no longer there, it makes me think, is that yet another reason that Deshaun Watson isn't going to want to be there? If Easterby has so much control behind the scenes or or Cal McNair is so blind to what's happening behind the scenes that he's not doing anything about it, at some point, if it's affecting everybody that may have a good relationship with Deshaun Watson behind the scenes, it's only going to further fuel his desire to want to get out of town. Yeah, and this dates back to his his arrival there. He was only there for just a couple months and, a, 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 according to reports, made such an impact on Cal McNair that he played a big role in them firing their GM at the time, Brian Gain, right? And the way you hear him talked about, he's got his hands in everything, things that don't necessarily make sense for someone that spent 14 years as a chaplain and character coach in college and the NFL. That's not to say you can't evolve into a role, but to be someone who's, you know, affecting personnel and planning and hiring and firing and the state of the team in a position that appears to be affecting a disparate number of folks all the way from communications to president to players, he seems to have an outsized effect on what's going on there and what's going on there has been all bad. Um, Deshaun Watson, by the way, has praised him at times. So I don't know if it's as simple as they don't like him or if it's the culture being created or what, but clearly whatever's happening, I think, you know, we've called this section, the segment dysfunction junction, whatever they're trying to hide that's going on there, whatever's leaking is bad enough to let us know that this is a sinking ship. And it's got to be fixed right away because it all lies at the feet of Cal McNair. And there's nothing more hopeless as a football fan than realizing that it's the owner of your team, the number one person in charge of everything that really is the problem because that's an unfixable problem. Now, uh, they're not the only portion of Dysfunction Junction. There's another team in all of sports that we can look at and say things are dysfunctional for, and suddenly it's the Brooklyn Nets. They've lost three in a row. Uh, You know, just a week ago it felt like everybody was high on the Nets. Now it feels like everybody's low on them as they've lost to some bad teams. That brings us to Kyrie Irving. Always a lightning rod for controversy, who was asked directly if this is who they want to be as a team, and his answer has some controversy and surprise in it. I think you can answer the first question yourself. I don't think that we go out every single day of our lives and sacrifice the time in order to be average at anything. You know, I know you don't wake up. I know no one here on this call wakes up to be average at anything that they do. Uh, and we look very average, you know, and we have the talent that the eye test presents that we should be dominating. 
you know, we have the experience in, in terms of some of our guys that have been through certain things, circumstances to be able to battle through. And we're dealing with a lot of the reality that we're putting this together on the fly. Like we, we are the team that the NBA put the most games on. We're, we're the team that gets someone taken out during COVID, during the games. We're the team that has to deal with the refs. We're, we're the team that is literally battling against so many odds that at this point, it's not even a reason to continue to comment on it. They are what they are. And as a warrior that I am and that the energy that I have alongside my teammates, we just have to turn that corner. And we haven't done it yet, but we will. And I'm telling you, the league's going to be on notice when that happens. So just got to take it day by day. Oh, oh, the lack of accountability fits. How about also you're on the fly because you disappeared for a number of games and your team took some losses and they got delayed in their development because you weren't there. As for the COVID stuff, there are no rules that are different for anybody. They're all the same. Yes, Kevin Durant was taken out mid-game, but that could have happened to any other player in that exact situation. If you think the NBA is intentionally making things more difficult for a team that has the highest ceiling in terms of excitement in the league, then you're a moron. There's no way that the, that the NBA would be treating them any differently. And as for the officiating, a CBS Sports story laid it out. The Nets entered Monday, ranked eighth in the NBA in free throw attempts per game, despite rarely attacking the basket. They take the 17th most shots in the restricted area and the 19th most shots in the paint outside of the restricted area. They're a jump shooting team, and they are still getting to the line more than you would expect. To me, this is just indicative of how this is always going to go. It's somebody else's fault. Especially in the NBA current world where you can look at the two-minute report after virtually every game, right? Like, the the fact that every call is out there to be analyzed and reviewed, it just feels so soft. And uh, even aside from the, the numbers you just showed, the biggest point there is such an important one to me that the NBA wins if Brooklyn wins. Like, this is a great story. you got to have heroes and villains. That's how the league always manages to make it happen. To imply otherwise, it's just absolutely asinine by Kyrie Irving. That's some straight talk. Straight talk wireless. No contract, no compromise. Leave it to Kyrie to make it about anything other than what he actually does on the court. Coming up, how much optimism should we have for a 2021 baseball season? We'll ask one of our favorite experts next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Baseball is coming. We feel pretty good about spring training starting on time. We don't really know what the regular season's going to look like, but we got a lot of questions about the specifics as pitchers and catchers are set to report very soon. It's Spain and Fitz, Air Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. If you miss anything on the show or you want the digital only pre-parties and after parties we do sometimes, let's bring in an expert to talk to us about baseball as it approaches. On the Goodyear hotline, it's ESPN MLB insider Jeff Passan. Jeff, let's get down to this baseball change because uh, I intentionally got into sports so I wouldn't have to do anything relating to math and science. And I'm learning a whole lot about drag rate and the third wooling and the centimeters and millimeters and everything else. What's your take on baseball's change to the ball itself? I got to be honest. I have no idea what kind of change it's going to be. And and they can try and tinker with the manufacturing to make it a less springy ball to uh, have the um, coefficient of restitution. Do you know what that means yet, by the way? No. Like, are you that nerdy now where you know what the coefficient of restitution is? No, 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 you're going to have to help me. All right, good. Um, You shouldn't. Like, don't worry about (laughs) it. Like, 
I, all I all I want is for there to be a fair ball in play so that we don't and see consistent. like yeah. pop ups that look like they're home runs. That's the like that's the thing that bothers me the most. When when you know it's not a great swing, it's not great contact, and the ball just keeps flying and flying and flying and flying. I think that's what they're trying to get rid of. Will it? I honestly have absolutely no idea. It's Spain and Fitz. We're talking to ESPN Major League Baseball insider Jeff Passon. So Jeff, we talked to Kirkson yesterday. We all acknowledge spring training looks like it's gonna start on time, but he didn't feel very optimistic about the season as a whole starting being able to make it through. What are your thoughts on the timing of the season? How confident are you? I wasn't particularly optimistic going into last season either. And yet there they were at the end of October crowning the Los Angeles Dodgers champions. And we have seen the NBA make it through a bubble season. We've seen the NHL make it through a bubble season. We've seen the NFL make it through an unbubbled season, despite, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of positive cases. Uh, baseball is a little different because you don't have six days in between games. Uh, but I think what baseball illustrated was its ability to play through the pandemic last year and do so successfully. And I'm not saying that the procedures and protocols uh, are by any means impermeable. There are going to be positives. There are probably going to be a fair number of them, but the combination of uh, the vaccine hopefully continuing to be distributed uh, to be distributed as, as much as it is right now uh, and uh, the case numbers going down, it gives me some faith and confidence that they are, in fact, going to be able to, and let's just, you know, not just for baseball's sake, for everyone's sake, let's hope the variants that are out there uh, do not get worse. It's Spain and Fitz. We're talking to ESPN MLB insider Jeff Passan. As we get closer to the start of baseball season, I at least feel good it's outdoors, and we saw how that helped before. You have to hope that the vigilance around the protocols remains and there isn't fatigue as we enter a second season of having to try to keep that energy. Um, I want to talk to you. We wanted to leave some time for you to talk about our teammate, Pedro Gomez passing. Um, I was on the incredible website uh, that's been put together of uh, kudos for Pedro memories from people. And I, I think you summed it up perfectly when you said, pardon the hyperbolic language here, but I don't feel like, and it's exaggeration to say that Pedro had an aura about him. Like he was radiating good. We say a lot of wonderful things about people when they're gone, and honestly, we should say a lot more of them before they're gone. But I think that is not hyperbolic at all. I would love for you to expand on that because I feel the same way. It just felt like he was a good person, and if he was around, your day was going to get better. Yeah, there was that, but there was also the fact that he just had, like, magnificent hair, and his (laughs) skin was always magnificent, too. And and I just looked at him, I'm like... Oh, my God. And I looked at him. I was like, God, I just want to look like you for one day. Like, you're 20 years older than I am. And I would totally trade places with you. And he was, you know, that like, Pedro was this this wonderfully authoritative presence without being, like, authoritarian. Um, you know, you, you would see him walking, and you knew that uh, you knew that he was a confident person, but that his confidence wasn't going to get in the way of... Uh, his general goodness. And, and to me, like one of the things that I try to do, and I think I try, you know, I, I didn't realize until Pedro passed that it was probably directly due to, to him and, and others who are like him is treat younger people in the business uh, well and, and give them time and not scoff at them uh, as you know, some more established people have a tendency to do. And I I didn't do that, or I try not to do that, because Pedro didn't do that to me. 
Uh, I started writing baseball in 2004, and I was 23 years old at the time, and I didn't know what the hell I was doing, and yet I was out there every day, you know, as time went on, chasing Barry Bonds around as he was, uh, you know, on the way to uh, breaking Henry Aaron's home run record. And Pedro was, uh, you know, Pedro was a star. Like Pedro, Pedro was the guy, I think as much as anyone, not just media, but anyone who will be associated with Barry Bonds from that time period, because it was just, he was ubiquitous. And Pedro could have looked at me like snot-nosed kid, never written ball before, doesn't know what the hell he's doing, and uh, just dismissed me. Instead, he embraced me and uh, has has been a phenomenal friend ever since and one of the great joys and pleasures of coming to ESPN in 2019 was knowing that I could call Pedro Gomez a teammate. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. We're talking to ESPN Major League Baseball insider Jeff Passan. Unfortunately, Jeff, for so many of us, that's not the only passing we've uh, come across and had to deal with in the last uh, week. Therese Paler uh, passed earlier this week, too. I know you have history with Yahoo in Kansas City. Did you uh, d- did you know Therese? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I remember a, a long conversation that I had with Therese right before he got hired at Yahoo. And I, you know, Therese was actually a backup baseball writer. He he did everything when he was working his way up. Like, that dude just worked his ass off. And I, I knew he was going to be something in this business because he had motor. That is like, uh, you know, every time I talk to, to college kids, they, they always ask me, you know, what does it take to make it in this business? I say, you better have a nonstop motor. And Therese's motor was nonstop. He covered high schools. He covered college sports. He covered baseball. But, God, he loved football. And I had worked at Yahoo for uh, 14 years at that point, and he wanted to know what it was going to be like. And I I was straight with him. Like, it's a big leap to go from covering the Chiefs at the Kansas City Star to a national job. But uh, the the work that he put in and and the footprint that he he had made, you know, I I joked with friends like I, I worked with Therese for a short period of time at Yahoo, but I was pretty sure I was going to work with him again because uh, in due time there was going to be someone at ESPN uh, who saw what everybody else saw in him, and and that was. Uh, a great knowledge, an incredible work ethic, uh, uh, an unbelievable personality, and just like a, a God's honest, good soul. And and that's, you know, I didn't know Seku Smith, but I, I read all the tributes to him. I did know Pedro Gomez, and I did know Therese Paler, and it feels like the number of good souls that we have lost in this industry over the past couple of weeks, uh, it's just so tragic and and so sad and and so unfortunate. Agreed. Agreed. And I hope at least uh, the solace is that we have conversations about how much we love them and we maybe talk to each other more about how we feel about each other before uh, we come to these unfortunate times when it's uh, posthumous. Um, And I will say that 
uh, that kind of glow around Pedro is something that I hope we all try to have a little bit more around our, our colleagues and as we move through the industry, because uh, I think it's something everybody mentioned. And if someone can make you feel that way, then it'd be great to make other people feel that way, too. Um, Jeff, I don't know if it's going to work out for us. We're a little too sarcastic and kind of smart asses, but we could try. I know. I was just going to pay you a compliment, <laughs> but then I realized that it's, it's not right. It's, it's not our brand. Yeah, uh, speak for yourselves. <laughs> I'm a beacon of light. I'm a beacon of light. Well, Fitz can bring us together in a group hug that we can awkwardly <laughs> shrug off and make fun of each other after. Thanks for the time, Jeff. Appreciate yeah, no, it. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I have I have no problem loving everybody else. But you, Sarah, my, yeah. my love for you is expressed only in hatred. Yeah, we might be deep down brother and sister somehow. I'm starting to think that that's the that's the vibe here. Uh, thank you, Jeff. Just admit he loves me. That's all I heard. There. He Passing did. He admit, loves you. Admits he loves he me. Loves God, you. it feels good. Yeah, because you're the only person he can beat up. That's why. No, that's probably fair. <laughs> ESPN Radio is presented by. I would pay to see that fight. Oh my God, the squealing by both of you. Oh my God, yeah, no, it would be it would be oh, incredible work. Amazing. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. At Progressive, they're making things even easier. They'll help you bundle your home and car insurance together so you can save on both. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Coming up, Mark Cuban addressed the anthem today, and this conversation is spiraling out of control again. We'll get into it next on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain, Jason Fitz. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. It feels like we've done this many years ago, a couple months ago, and here we are again talking about the anthem and its place in sports. The latest inspired by the realization many games in to this season that the Mavericks haven't been playing the national anthem for their games. Haven't done it for any preseason or regular season games this year due to an ongoing conversation, as Mark Cuban put it, with the community about its place in the game and how it makes members of the team and staff feel he was on the jump today and talked about the fact that they didn't cancel it per se or make a long-term final decision. It's an ongoing decision that has resulted in what we see now. Basically, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we had never decided that we weren't going to play the anthem when we had fans in. Mm-hmm. You know, we had some fans in last game, but they were all um, healthcare workers and people we were honoring. They weren't our ticket holders or season ticket holders at all. So, you know, we didn't know, you know, that it would be brought to a head at this point. But it was an ongoing discussion in terms of when we would have our paying fans or season ticket holders back in the arena that we would address it then. So right now, they're not thinking about its effect on the season ticket holders and paying ticket fans. They're thinking about the effect on the insular group that is in the building for every game. And he talked about the NBA releasing a press release when this came to light, saying that they're going to be playing it at every game, just like the NBA wants, and how they reacted to that. I knew the press release was coming, and we were in full agreement with it. Look, we have no problem playing the national anthem at all. I stand for the national anthem. My hand is always over my heart. We've supported the National Flag Foundation and done work with them. You know, that isn't the issue at all. The, the real issue is how do, you, how do you express the voices of those who feel the anthem doesn't represent them or cause, causes them consternation? And how do you do that going forward? Well, that, that's why we have SINT. You know, that, that's the programs that we are setting up with SINT. You know, we listen, learn, we unite. We, you know, we have courageous conversations and we'll have many more of those, you know, with our current players, with our former players, with key people in the community. We have DMAC, which are our organization of people from the community that we listen to on these issues. You know, we don't do this in a vacuum. We make these decisions after having talked to and listening and, and making sure that, you know, our goal is to have all voices heard, not just the loudest voices. 
So Fitz, you know, back in June on Outside the Lines, he said he hoped the league would allow players to do what's in their heart. They haven't thus far. There's been a very steadfast rule in the NBA that you must play the anthem, you must be out there for the anthem, and you must stand for it. Uh, the fact that we're having this conversation, again, is frankly exhausting to me. But what do you make of the fact that it didn't play for 13 games? It became a thing. The NBA stepped in. And now Mark Cuban is left saying we got to go to other ways to get with our players on this if they're not going to allow us to listen to them and enforce what we think is right on our own. At some level, though, this feels like it's a little bit of backtracking by Cuban. I mean, uh, only because I'll go back to the USA Today Sports uh, article that was from the day before, right, where they confirmed with Cuban that they're not playing the anthem. Now, I understand that that could just be a confirmation that they're not playing the anthem currently and that they may be looking at it. But Mark Cuban's also smart enough to know how media works. I'm stunned to see that they would run that in a USA Today article from the sports section without Mark saying, well, we're still analyzing it, we're still looking into it, but as of right now, we're not playing the anthem. I mean, that's that's a lot of context that would be missing from this. So it feels like Cuban is trying to decide as the – you know, as the owner of this team, what he thinks is best for his organization in a market that may not be the most welcoming to that decision, but now is backtracking that he does, when he realizes he doesn't necessarily have the power to do that, even if he wants to. Yeah, it does feel like, for him, the ongoing conversation was, the group that we have in the building right now, this is the right answer for us. When we let in fans, we're going to take the temperature of the community and see if anybody notices or cares and then react accordingly, which is a business decision. I'll be honest. Um, without giving too much information, I've been in a room with a team in a professional sports league having this conversation. What do we do? Do we do we just get rid of the anthem? Do we play it but allow players to be in the locker room? Do we play it and make the players be on the field but let them make a decision to kneel or stand? Do we care if the team all does the same thing? And what's the reaction of the fans if they're looking and trying to pick out who's standing and sitting and, and kneeling and what it means? Right, because Fitz, the other thing is, when this all started, the kneeling was what people focused on and made people angry. Now there are, there are elements in more progressive leagues where the standing is what angers people. When teammates are kneeling, they don't feel like those people are supporting them. So now we've got a, a, such a, a, a hot point that no matter what you do in response to this very rote, stored, sort of un, un, uninvested and, and uninvestigated um, tradition is that it's going to make anybody mad no matter what and the fact that it exists based on a historical precedent set during wartime and then became intentionally affiliated with support for police and veterans tangles things up so much is that i think it's smart to reconsider whether we play it and why maybe for important events where there are multiple countries and it makes sense to represent different countries with their anthem but for every single sporting event in the united states to me it's pointless and if you read howard bryant's incredible column about this you will see how intentional the tying of the anthem and our flag to the police and veterans has been in support of covering up dangerous and militant practices I do not say that lightly. Read the story that Howard Bryant wrote about the anthem and how after 9-11, um, it, it, was, it was done to control a narrative. And we need to investigate that and not just blindly say to keep doing it because we always have. Not always, because we have recently. I have, in my lifetime, sung the anthem a bunch. I've played the anthem a bunch. I've talked about it before. I played the anthem for the Raiders a couple of times. One of the things that's always interesting to me, I did it for the Preds before that. I've done it a bunch in my life. One of the things that's interesting is I went back a few years ago and tried to find the footage of me playing the National Anthem for the Raiders because that's something I wanted for me to have for my lifetime, you know, to go back and look at. 
standing on the 50-yard line of my favorite team. I'll never forget it. When I went back to the team and said, hey, can I get the footage of it? Their response was, sorry, man, like we, we didn't like, it doesn't air. So we don't have it. So I went back to the local affiliates in the area and said, man, did anybody play this? And this is 2016, 2015. Did anybody play it? And the answer was no, we don't televise the anthem unless it's a huge event. Like right. even though it's sung in the stadium, we don't keep a record of it. So the only record I have of the first time I played the anthem for the Raiders is somebody's cell phone video that they thankfully sent me. Uh, from when I put out on social media, does anybody have it? I say that as a reminder that it didn't used to be a big deal. Like, I, I'm sorry, but I've played it in enough stadiums where people are walking around having a beer, nobody's paying attention. Like, that's that's real. Like, I've played it in stadiums where you look around and you think, man, there is nobody here. And then 15 minutes later, the place is packed. Like, it has become a hot-button item. But I just I, – I have to ask how many people truly will go back and look at their past and say five years ago they cared this much about it. it it's stunning to me. Yeah, like so many things, it becomes a symbol for a side. It becomes a symbol for a belief system. And now that that has meant both sides can be angered by the actions during an anthem, I do think it's a time to revisit what purpose it serves. It certainly isn't uniting us under the flag. It certainly isn't reminding us of what the flag is intended to stand for. For those that don't feel they're represented by it, they're reminded that it's never truly been a reality, those ideals. And for those who are angry when you don't stand... To me, it feels like they're arguing on behalf of a belief system and not the actual act of an anthem. We've lost touch with it yet again. Jason Reed of The Undefeated going to join us next. I bet he has some thoughts on this. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz were presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Super easy. Get out there, subscribe, and uh, not only do you get our show, but you also get exclusive content. We get you out there sometimes, a little pre-show, post-show. we got a little party going every once in a while, so uh, we like to have a little fun out there. Make sure you are subscribing. In the meantime, we're going to head right to the Goodyear Hotline. I'm excited for this. Jason Reed joining us, senior NFL scene uh, writer for The Undefeated. And, uh, Jason, we got a lot to get into, and one of the things that we wanted to do in Black History Month is talk to some of our favorite people that we think could bring some perspective around diversity issues in all of sports. So we'll get to the NFL side of it in a second. But we were just having a discussion about the anthem, and obviously Mark Cuban at one point looks like the Mavs not playing the anthem. Now it looks like they may change course when fans come into the stadium. So when you see teams still trying to figure out this issue, where is the balance for an owner of a team between representing what their players who may – statistically or usually, right, more people of a diversity, uh, where do they find the balance between representing those players and what they're feeling versus representing what their customers that are paying tickets, uh, money for tickets want? Well, Fitz, what strikes me the most about this situation is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I've read, the Mavericks did not play the anthem for like, anthem for like 13 games. Yep. And it, it, it wasn't an issue. As a matter of fact, basically no one noticed. Then when it was noticed, the league took a position that this is an issue. You know, I really think we're at a point right now where when you look at the anthem and everything that surrounded it, stemming from the, the, the Kaepernick protest during the anthem, I, I think we're at a point right now where we almost should be beyond this. I, I think that, you know, patriotism and what patriotism means, like, we're dealing with these issues right now with what we saw happen at, at, at the Capitol. We're, we're dealing with these issues around this space of what does it mean 
to be a patriotic American. And I just think this anthem issue is being kept alive in a space that it really doesn't need to be. And, and, and hence, again, I mean, I, I point to the situation with the Mavericks. It wasn't a problem. No one even noticed. Like, we don't play the anthem. I, I haven't been in Bristol, you know, in a long time because of the pandemic. But I remember, like, whenever I was on campus, I remember, like, you know, walking into the CAF and the anthem was playing every morning or, you know, being in some other building and the anthem was playing. I mean, I, I really think we can get beyond this and we can have a better, broader discussion about what it means to be a good American. And it doesn't, I think, necessarily involve playing the anthem at sporting events moving forward, in my opinion. I agree with you, because at this point now, people are angry on both sides for the kneeling and the standing. So it's not bringing anyone together. We're not having real discussion about the issues that brought this to a head in the first place. We're just continuing to argue over the symbolism of a piece of cloth and what it's supposed to stand for and whether it actually does. And I don't think that both sides are genuinely invested in the conversations at hand. Some are just looking to either demonize or separate. And and it feels like it's lost uh, any of the any of the reasons that we may be introduced into the sporting world in the first place. We also were talking a lot about diversity in NFL coaching hires. And I was on a podcast last night with uh, former NFL coach Hugh Jackson, and he offered up that he was in a in a meeting with the NFL on on how to how to affect diversity at the head coaching position. And he suggested that there should be an even split when there are coaching openings uh, for uh, for black men and and anybody else. So if you have six jobs open, three of them have to go to at least three have to go to black men, that it needs to be a forced hiring because no initiative has ever worked. So in order to counteract the inherent unfairness over the course of years of embedded racism and subconscious desire to hire people who look like or feel like you, in order to counteract that subconscious unfairness, you have to overtly force that kind of equal hiring. Do you agree with that idea? Uh, Sarah, that's never going to happen. And, you know, I, I understand theoretically what he was saying, but from the inception of the Rooney Rule back in 2003 when Johnny Cochran um, and, you know, uh, Cyrus Mary were pushing the league to uh, you know, embrace some form of inclusive hiring, it was made clear by all of the owners that quotas were a non-starter that that was something, Sarah, that they would never go for. And, you know, ultimately, Cyrus Murray and, and Johnny Cochran decided not to sue the league because it, 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 was, it would be very hard to, to sue the NFL. You'd have to sue individual teams, and the, the threshold to actually win would be very difficult. And there were other issues, too, why they didn't want to go forward with actual lawsuits, which is why they negotiated. And the whole theory being behind the Rooney Rule, making it a best practice, was more palatable, owner, palatable to owners instead of being a quota system. So a quota system will never happen. And the problem is, you know, from the side of that wants inclusive hiring, the NFL is pushing $20 billion in revenue. You can't tell these owners, I mean, these are owners of teams, that, okay, this year of the six, of the six openings, you three owners have to hire uh, coaches of color. 
I mean, coaches of color don't want that. Like, what they want is is it for there to be a, a, a level playing field or something close to a level playing field. No one wants, and I mean, I, I talk to black assistant coaches about this all the time. None of them want to be in a position from even a, co- a coordinator situation where it's, it's mandated that they have to be hired because that delegitimizes them. It makes them people who walk in the building with – yeah. You know, with a, a scarlet letter, so to speak. So it just doesn't work, and, and that's never going to happen. So what has to happen in your mind, Jason, to accomplish better diversity in hires? Okay, Fitz, here's the thing, and I know you know people don't like this when I write this and they come after me on Twitter about it. Whatever you think of Roger Goodell, Roger Goodell, the people on the other side of this issue tell me, is an ally, and he has done everything he potentially can from a league standpoint to push owners in the right direction, to try to start to get on the right side of history. I think what has to happen is, is that there just has to be a continued focus by, by people like us who write and talk about stuff on, on TV and, and, and the radio, keep pushing these owners to try to do the right thing. You know, from talking to Troy Vincent, who's a high-level NFL official, he's told me, look, in these rooms there are some owners who understand and they do get it and they want to they want to do the right thing what needs to happen is pressure has to continue to be applied so that the those owners who are allies in in trying to do the right thing that they can then become the majority in those rooms instead of the minority sarah spain jason fitz we're talking to jason reed senior nfl uh, writer for the undefeated this concept of black history always is happening all around us. We're almost out of time here, but I wonder if you could speak to keeping that energy and how optimistic you are for us ever to return to the height of it, which, of course, was lockdown, no distractions post-George Floyd. I mean, you know, the whole black history thing, I, I mean, Chris Rock has a, that joke about, you know, they gave us the shortest and the coldest month of the year right. in case we want to have a parade. Right. I mean, I, I, I just think that, Look, black history is, is in the context that we're talking about, is American history. It's the history of the United States. And I just think that if people will recognize that, hey, there are some systemic things that have occurred in this country that are wrong, and that if people want to be decent people and good people, we have to recognize that and move forward together. I think that's the best way to have black history always, so to speak. Jason, before we let you go, I know Pedro Gomez was somebody that you were close to. I wanted to give you the opportunity to say a little about Pedro and what he meant for you. Yeah, Fitz, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, briefly, everybody, I think, you know, has seen the, the tributes to Pedro. And Pedro was an incredible journalist, uh, you know, broadcast journalist at ESPN. But I remember Pedro, you know, when I was a young kid coming up as a baseball writer out on the West Coast. And he was a guy who looked out for me, and he was a guy who busted my chops and who was always, always had my back. And, you know, I was writing during the Super Bowl, and, and uh, Sal Palantonio pulled me aside to tell me he didn't want me to see it pop up on the Internet. And all I could think is, you know, Pedro was so young, and, and people say, well, you know, he's 58. But when you start to get a little older, you know that that's not old. And to have someone who is such a bright light for so many people and such a good person – beyond what a great reporter he was, taken from us so soon. It's very painful. My heart goes out to his family, who he was an incredible family man. And, um, you know, ESPN lost a lot. But I want to say that all of journalism lost a lot because you you don't find people like Pedro Gomez often in this world. You guys can follow Jason at J. Reed ESPN. Jason, as always, my friend, we appreciate your time, your insight. Uh, and uh, just you coming on and joining us for so much uh, so much of your time. We appreciate it, Jason. Thank you, guys.
Jason Reed, brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. We're just getting started uh, as we need to get you caught up on everything that you missed from the college basketball season. We'll get another expert on one of our favorites joining us next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. It fits on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app at Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. And we're trying to get you guys caught up knowing that you've been spending all of your time focused on, I don't know, football. Now that we're past the Super Bowl, it's a great way to get you caught up on some things that maybe you weren't paying attention to. We do it this way. So what did I miss? What did I miss? That's right. That's it's right. What did I miss? College basketball edition. That's what we're doing today. Uh, so we'll, we're joined now by Myron Metcalf, ESPN College Basketball Reporter, co-host of Sunday Morning on ESPN Radio, brought to you by Wendy's, proud sponsor of the 2021 John R. Wooden Men's and Women's Player of the Year and also the maker of the single greatest uh, hamburger in the world, the Junior Bacon Cheeseburger. Myron, as always, <laughs> we appreciate your time. Uh, we're trying to get everybody caught up on what they missed, and this has been a weird year in college basketball. So, you know, we got blue bloods that stink. We got non-traditional programs that are ruling everything. So to you... What's the most surprising thing so far out of this college basketball season? I mean, I think you just hit it. I mean, the fact that Duke, Kentucky, North Carolina, Kansas all struggling, uh, I think that's the biggest surprise. Like, you just – you don't have situations like this where all of the powerhouses are struggling, but they certainly are, and that kind of takes a spotlight off the game. I would say the biggest positive surprise is probably Alabama and just how good they've been – uh, probably going to win the SEC, can make a run to the Final Four. I mean, we're talking about Alabama and basketball. You don't really hear that conversation very often, <laughs> but they have a chance to win it all. So they've been interesting. Well, I think as remarkable as it is to talk about them is the fact that we aren't talking about a lot of the Blue Bloods that are having absolutely terrible seasons. I feel like we're largely sleeping on college basketball, not just because of lots of big stories in the NFL and Super Bowl and everything else, but because we don't know where to turn our eyes for the usual greatness and we're we're not able to look to those programs that were used to being good how much of an effect on the season do you think it's been that those great teams are struggling well, i think it's huge i mean like i measured the popularity of college basketball based on what the dudes in my barbershop say and like they know <laughs> zion you know they knew anthony davis they knew guys like that they knew trey young even you know even though he's at oklahoma he had that you know great season but they're not talking about college basketball this year to your point like no one really knows these teams and like there's some great teams Gonzaga's really good Jalen Suggs is going to be a top five pick Baylor's good Michigan's good but anytime you have a season where Duke and Kentucky aren't good North Carolina and Kansas are just okay it's just going to bring the entire game down like college basketball always needs sort of that catalyst that spark plug and you could point to Zion a couple years ago you could point to that great Kentucky team with Carl Anthony Towns a few years before that but it's more difficult to get people interested in the game just because those teams are struggling. Now, we're talking to Myron Metcalf, ESPN college basketball reporter, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. And Myron, you really blew our minds when we had you on before and you talked about some of the constraints that different teams <laughs> were dealing with and, and the practices. And, you know, and I think about that every time we're watching some of these teams struggle. So in your mind, and, and I think, by the way, those constraints have made for a very up-and-down season for a lot of teams. So how does all of this play in to the tournament as we look towards? Like, can somebody actually fix it and go on a run? We're going to find out. I mean, you know, Michigan's a really good example. They were on a roll. One lost Michigan team, they're paused till uh, this weekend. That's three weeks for them. So how does that affect the momentum? I mean, I've talked to players who, 
They're working out in parking lots because they're paused. They're doing wind sprints in parking lots just to try to stay in shape. It's just bizarre. I mean, it's going to be interesting what happens in the next three weeks before the conference tournaments. Will teams end up getting in a situation where they have to pause again? How will that affect their momentum going into the postseason? And remember, with the NCAA tournament, no matter who you are, you have to test negative seven times in a row. So what's going to be interesting is if teams have outbreaks during that period. How does the NCAA handle that? The NCAA has said, we're not stopping this show for anybody. Uh, so they intend to move forward regardless of the circumstances. But I think every coach in America is, is you know, hoping that they don't run into some situation where they have to pause uh, before the tournament and that messes up their opportunity to make a run. But it's, it's bizarre. I mean, they're going to need 3,000 hotel rooms in Indianapolis to pull this thing off. Good luck, everybody. Uh, I think about that interview a lot, too, because we later had Paul Weiron, the head coach at the University of New Mexico, and I accidentally referred to something that the other New Mexico school was doing, and then the entire <laughs> state hated me. Uh, so that's why we need you here, because I keep missing things, like which New Mexico school I'm talking about. Uh, Myron Metcalf, ESPN College basketball reporter, host of Sunday Morning on ESPN Radio with us here on Spain and Fitz. Do you think that it's more likely, then, that a team that is less talented but gets lucky succeeds is there more likely to be chaos in march madness because of that or do all teams getting affected by covid does that mean that still the talent rises to the top like it would in a regular year uh yeah i mean i think if you didn't have gonzaga and baylor i'd probably say you know what anything could happen but i would say anything can happen up until gonzaga and baylor like i don't think anybody's better than those two teams uh, i don't think anybody no matter the circumstances has an opportunity to knock them out of the tournament. I just think they're on sort of a collision course uh, to face each other in the national championship game. The early rounds I do think will be interesting because if you have a pause or you have a team that's dealing with some of these issues, it's not just the physical element, it's the psychological element too. A lot of these teams are worn down. A lot of these coaches are worn down. So most years you're like, who has the most momentum on the court? Who's won a bunch of games? But this year it's going to be the stuff that you can't see. Like who's focused? Who's really hurting from all of this? And I just wanted to say, like, how many of these dudes just want to go home? Like, how many yeah. guys are so sick of being in their bubble and having to live by these protocols? They're not getting NBA checks. How many just want to get out of here and go back to somewhat of a normal life? So I think you'll have different teams in different places, but Gonzaga and Baylor are just too good. I don't think anybody beats them. Take me to the other side of that, though, Myron, because I feel like I've had this debate with Sean Farnham a couple of times that does so much ESPN college basketball work. He's worried that if you take the game away, mentally it's really going to hurt the kids. So you've got some that are you know tired of being in this environment, but others that don't want to be pried away from the game. Where's the balance? Well, I think a lot of coaches are trying to figure it out. Figure it out. And I think, you know, certainly if you can play, I think there are a number of players who say, yeah, this is a positive thing. If I'm going to be on campus, I want to be doing this. The problem is they're not living any sort of normal experience. You know, they're not interacting with people that you normally would if you were a college kid. They're living under certain restrictions and guidelines. It's just not normal. Um, and, again, this isn't the NBA. It's not an NBA bubble. Uh, it, it's much different than that. So, yeah, certainly playing the game has helped a lot of these kids who wanted to be a part of it. But there's more, I'm sure, who are worn out and worn down uh, and just have been having a difficult time. Like I said before, I think on my last interview, I know guys who've been paused for weeks and weeks. Like, that's not good mentally. You guys can listen to him on Sunday morning, uh, co-host of Sunday Morning on ESPN Radio. Check him out all across the ESPN college basketball landscape. Myron, as always, we appreciate your time, my friend. Stay safe out there. Appreciate it. Thank you.
Great stuff from Myron, who, by the way, Sarah, one of the reasons we love having him on is he never pulls any punches when it comes to oh. what basketball is doing, what they shouldn't be doing. It's part, part of what makes him great at, uh, at what he does. And it is going to be a fun season to watch, but it is going to be weird to see Gonzaga taking on Baylor if that's the way it ends up. That's just right. so not I what I like you say going to be a fun season to watch because you're just like me. I start watching around now, maybe a little closer to March. I watch all the college basketball Yeah, we'll go with that All right, coming up It was a historic weekend for one Super Bowl official We'll get to that story as part of Game Changers We'll do it next Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app Spain and Fitz, the podcast Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80 This Super Bowl... Made history in a number of ways, not the least of which was uh, the cause for Tom Brady's drunken behavior today. A record number of Super Bowls for that guy. A big win for a Bucks team that was out of the uh, contention for quite some time. But also a record number of women involved. Coaches, training staff, and officiating. Which brings us to our guest, who's going to join us for a little Game Changers. In the world of men's professional sports, many women are breaking through and making their mark. They're not going to be looking at him sideways. The reason why I take so much objection. He is literally running with the entire team. The NBA is actually facing backlash on both sides. Their stories are told here on Spain and Fitz. Time for this edition of Game Changers. That's right, Game Changers. We talk to women who are in predominantly male positions about their rise to success, the doors that they're opening behind them, and some of the challenges they still face as one of the few women in their position. Sarah Thomas, NFL official, Super Bowl official with us here on Game Changers. Sarah, thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it, Sarah. I love watching you. Oh, thank you so much. I love hearing that. Uh, Let's talk about the Super Bowl. I want you to take us back to when you heard the news that you had earned, because it is an earned position, a spot calling the big game. Yep. So I had just left the gym from working out, and I'm driving to the house, and uh, I get a phone call from one of the supervisors, Wayne Mackey, and he's kind of talking to me about a couple of plays from the divisional game, and he goes, uh, the reason I'm talking to you about this is because I know that you're going to be nailing it just like you did on the divisional game in the Super Bowl this year. And I went, <laughs> what? And so I pull over on the side of the road to make sure I didn't lose cell service. And I I said, Wayne, are you serious? He said, yes. He said, you've had a phenomenal year. And I am so glad that I'm the one that gets to call you and do this. But I love Wayne's humor and calling me up and just kind of joking around with me about certain things, but also just having that serious moment of being the one to tell me that I was going to be able to work the Super Bowl. Man, it gives me goosebumps hearing you say that, Sarah, (laughs) and it's so incredible. And I know it's a cliche question, but I have to ask it. When you know that you're the first woman that gets this opportunity, you're standing on the field as the game starts. I mean, what sets into your mind? How does that moment feel? I just have to be honest. The the crew that I was on this entire year, Sean Hockley, at the end of our pregame, Chad Hill, we call him Chili. He was my sideline partner all year. When we would wrap up, he would go, it's our Super Bowl tomorrow. And so every Sunday in the NFL, as you all know, these athletes are the best. And it is a Super Bowl every Sunday that we get to go and work. So when I walked onto the field, 
in Tampa on Sunday, it literally felt like another game that I had worked the entire season because we because we just continually prepare for it to be a Super Bowl every Sunday. Yeah, that's impressive that you can apply that week after week and then even with the craziness around you. Although I will say at least this year, smaller crowd uh, than usual, maybe a little bit less of the fanfare, so easier to try to make it another football game than maybe in a regular non-COVID year. We're talking to Sarah Thomas, NFL official, Super Bowl official here on Game Changers on Spain and Fitz. Sarah, there were a ton of calls in this game that people were critical of, like any other game, but it's heightened when it's the Super Bowl. I think, based on my searching, you are not on social media, which is a very wise decision. Uh, Does your phone blow up with friends and family? Do you have people weighing in the day after? Well, I think you did a nice job with this one, but you guys were sure wrong about this. Do you hear a lot about that after games? You know what? The the great thing about my friends and family that have access to my cell phone because I am not (laughs) on social media um, are very complimentary because they know the the walk that we have all walked, all of us on that field, in the replay booth. They know what we are up against, and they know the pride that we take in making sure that we call what we see. And so I don't listen to a lot of the – the rhetoric of um, people's opinion, even though I respect that everybody has one and that's great, but no, for the most part and, and really for all of it, um, everybody was very complimentary and I just believe in the power of prayer. I mean, you know, I was like telling everybody just please pray for the crew and, and honest to goodness, I mean, we worked a very great game and, and our word to go out was just let's be elite. And I believe that we did that. We're talking to game changer Sarah Thomas, the uh, first female official to work a Super Bowl. Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Sarah, how has the relationship been with the players on the field over the years? Like, how how do they treat you now versus when you first started officiating in the NFL? Fitz, it's, it's it's great that you say that. So, Coach Harbaugh from the Baltimore Ravens, I uh, was working a camp there when I was in a developmental program, and he comes up to me and he goes. I just have to tell you, this is an equal opportunity, equal employer opportunity for uh, us to like chew you out. We don't look <laughs> at you as a female, just look at you as an official and say, we're going to give you just as much grace. But I just have to say, there is enough negativity around a lot of the things that happen with the NFL. And I would say on a percentage, it's very low. There are so many great things that these players and coaches and the clubs do and their communities and what they do. Um, So it has been completely professional. And being a former athlete, I I, I jokingly say, but also there's there's a hint of truth and all sarcasm, I hated the officials when I played. And truth be told, <laughs> they they hated me. So I just I want to go out there and I want to manage the the game and my position and not be a a, a part of the game, if you will. And um, they, for the most part, have come up to me and said, "Congratulations! It's been an honor to be on the field with you." But still, in all, whenever things happen on the field, they're going to be passionate about it, and I understand that and I respect it. Um, but I just I just tip my hat to how everything is handled in the NFL, seriously. It, it, they, sometimes they get a bad rap, but I am here to tell you there's a lot more positive than there is negative. 
In Spain and Fitz, we're talking to Sarah Thomas, NFL official, the first female official in a Super Bowl. I love that. You just want to be fair. You don't want to be the story. That's what we all want from officials. And I have to admit, I loved watching you and Bill Belichick going at it because it felt like it felt like <laughs> equality. I'm like, chew her out. Tell her what you think because I want that you to be seen the same way as everybody else. Um, you know, Sarah, yeah. Sam, Sam Rappaport is a big uh, – we're big fans of Sam around here. And I remember her telling me in a Game Changers interview that one of the biggest barriers to the the number of female officials was really silly stuff like, is there a women's bathroom or any bathroom that you can access close to the field to be able to get in and out during game situations or pre or post game? The uniforms, the idea that women would be wearing men's uniforms that didn't fit them and that feeling of, of you know, being comfortable in that is necessary to do your job well. What things remain that are still just a tiny reminder that you're one of the few in the business? Sarah, you're, you're spot on with everything. I think my rookie season, it was more of what do we do with her and all of the off the field stuff. Um, I remember being in a facility and it was like a little trailer that they brought in and it was um, a shower and a mirror. There was, no bathroom facility, if you will. And I'm like, I'm not changing in here or uh, move the chain crew out and let her change in here. But, you know, they've, they've asked me um, over the course of my initial few years of what can we do to make it better? And all of the clubs have accommodated and it's been great. And honestly, just to say, are there any reminders that um, I'm still the only one? Um, I don't know that there is because COVID, yes, horrific and everything in our country and in the world. But with COVID, it allowed us as officials to go to the game dressed. And so it allowed me and all of the crewmates to be in the same locker room. They did have me my own female locker room. But there's just something about chemistry, just like you and Fitz. I mean, there's a chemistry, male, female, whatever it may be, but you cannot take away the chemistry that is off the scene or the field um, with the, the the camaraderie that is, is on the backside of it. And so even with Super Bowl, I, I, we didn't, we weren't able to be around each other the entire weekend. And then when we got in the locker room, we were there so early and I was just like, I've missed this this whole weekend. Here we are all in the same locker room and we're just shooting the, you know, the bull. And it was just like, you know, here, here we are, we're fam- family and the chemistry just, just enhanced as we were sitting there. So I just, I, I don't feel alienated, but I also say this, Sarah, I just believe that us women, we, we know we belong and we believe in what we can do. And the men, or even females, you know, really, not to um, just isolate the men, but the ones that have an issue with a newcomer are the ones that are probably more insecure than mm-hmm. the newcomer themselves. 100%. And insecure because they maybe worry about their own ability. It's certainly not worrying about the ability of the ones coming in. And uh, you're right about the chemistry with me and Fitz. We also share a locker room before every show. And it's an important moment <laughs> love- to bond and figure out what we're getting to. Skinny legs, that guy. Real skinny. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, Part thanks for the it. time. Congratulations and uh, keep kicking ass. You got it, girl. 
So Thanks do so much, you. Sarah. Keep doing it. <laughs> oh, mutual Sarah Love Society. I love this. I love this. It's spade hey, you know what? If it if it just means she knows who I am, I'm happy yeah. because I'm yeah, telling you, you I was watching the Super Bowl thing, and that is one badass. So that's, that's awesome. right. <laughs> uh, coming up, we get a little bit more into this Nets mess and the Kyrie sound. It's next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Jury is absolutely still out as to whether or not the average-looking Nets are going to be a force to reckon with come postseason. Because as we know, what you do in the regular season of the NBA matters in terms of looking at matchups, getting a record, getting your seating right. But over the last couple of years, we've seen teams like the Rockets or the Bucks or other high-flying teams in the regular season not finish it off in the postseason. So what the Nets do now doesn't matter nearly as much as what they do in the postseason but can they get their you-know-what together and make things happen in the playoffs that they haven't been able to just yet? It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. We've got some Kyrie sound for you. will play in just a second that if you haven't heard it, oh boy. Uh, but first, reminder, the college basketball season is heating up, which means the Wendy's Wooden Watch has begun. Go to ESPN.com and search Wooden Watch for the list of the Wooden Award late season top 20 nominees to watch as the season rolls on. Some of the names to watch include Iowa senior center Luke Garza and UConn freshman guard Paige Buckets Beckers. The John R. Wooden Award presented by Wendy's. All right, so this Kyrie sound, played it earlier, but if you missed it, uh, he finds a way to blame almost everybody except for himself and the team for their recent woes. I think you can answer the first question yourself. I don't think that we go out every single day uh, of our lives and sacrifice the time in order to be average at anything. You know, I know you don't wake up. I know no one here on this call wakes up to be average at anything that they do. Uh, and we look very average, you know, and we have the talent that the eye test presents that we should be dominating. Uh, you know, we have the experience in, in terms of some of our guys that have been through certain things, circumstances to be able to battle through. And we're dealing with a lot of the reality that we're putting this together on the fly. Like, we we are the team that the NBA put the most games on. We're, we're the team that gets someone taken out during COVID, during the games. We're the team that has to deal with the refs. We're, we're the team that is literally battling against so many odds that at this point, it's not even a reason to continue to comment on it. They are what they are. And as a warrior that I am and that the energy that I have alongside my teammates, we just have to turn that corner. And we haven't done it yet, but we will. And I'm telling you, the league's going to be on notice when that happens. So just got to take it day by day. Okay, Fitz. What do you make of that? Well, uh, you get some blame, and you get some blame, and you get some blame, <laughs> but I won't take any. It's the it's the Oprah giveaway of blame without taking any on his own shoulders. I, I cannot stand anything about this approach from Kyrie. I don't understand it. I will say loudly that the, the league works best with heroes and villains. The league right now has some dominant teams in the West, but they want an ultimate NBA championship. What would be the ultimate NBA championship? I don't know. How about a team that's in New York playing for the championship that has mega stars <laughs> on it that everybody knows even if you haven't watched a second of basketball all year long? So the inference in any level that there's some bias against Brooklyn makes zero sense. Why would the referees or the league not want Brooklyn to go as far as humanly possible because Brooklyn versus L.A. is the championship matchup that would win in the ratings, would win in the social media, would win in the conversation. So the the refs aren't doing anything. Brooklyn's doing this to themselves. They got away with playing no defense for a while, and it was cute. It was awesome. They were winning some games. Now it's not working out, and suddenly it's the refs' fault? Come on. 
Spain and Fitz here, Spain, Jason Fitz. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast, Apple, iTunes, the ESPN app, podcast app. You're right. They play really hard and can beat some great teams, almost like they get the focus together and they work in one unit to defeat the best. They play the worst and they sort of fall apart. You have to assume some of that has to do with focus, attention, preparation, overlooking teams that aren't any good. They're 7 and 11 against teams with a record below 500. That's the most of any team in the league. Not only that, but they've allowed those teams to score 122 points per game, the most in the NBA. It's almost as if maybe they're looking across and the presumption might be that those below 500 teams maybe don't have the superstar names. They don't get up for those one-on-ones. They don't put the defensive pressure on guys that don't have the big name that they want to show that they can then hang with. Right, 122 points a game for the worst teams in the league is an embarrassment. And to your point, the defense is obviously the issue. We've known it's going to be the issue the entire time. But it's also the accountability. Right, you got Harden and DeAndre Jordan having a spirited conversation, is the nicest way to put it, about how they're lining up on D and who's taking who. You got Kyrie Irving taking press conferences like this where he blames everybody but the team and himself, who, if we remember, is part of the reason that they're picking things up on the fly because he wasn't there and wasn't giving them a reason. And you got Kevin Durant, who's out because of COVID protocols. I don't know how much we can blame him for that, right? It was a team employee who tested positive, so Kevin Durant presumably was not acting outside of protocol. He was merely exposed to somebody who was, you know, uh, putting himself at risk. But the arguments against Kevin Durant being pulled are mostly ones that are ignorant, that point to the fact that he had COVID last March, almost a year ago, and the belief that he then has antibodies, something that has been disproved by people who have gotten COVID multiple times. The idea that you would use some guest at science about previous virus uh, uh, and how that might affect you a year later um, is completely unsafe and would be a terrible precedent for the NBA to set. So they can't offer up different rules for those who already had it. All of these things play along with what we've heard from Kyrie in the past, which is that it's always somebody else's fault. When I say something dumb and you all take it as something dumb, it's your fault because I meant something different and you just <laughs> took it the wrong way. Right. I mean, that's his M.O., I'm so tired of this, and I I really don't have a lot of belief that they're going to be able to pull it together in a series both defensively and up here. I'm pointing to my head. It's radio. Well, I mean, at some point, talent prevails. The the thing that I keep trying to tell myself is that Brooklyn's going to get worked out because they're more talented. What I would respect is if they just didn't treat all of us like we're stupid. I mean, at some point, if Kyrie wants to come out and, and give us the truth, which is, you got a bunch of stars that may or may not care about playing a regular season game in the middle of COVID against a bad team. Like, I'll take that all day long. A Hey, this game doesn't really matter. We care about the playoffs. I'd even take that refreshing level of honesty. At some point, the one thing that I think could be the downfall for Brooklyn, though, is the inability for everybody to, to have some level of accountability. If they can't have accountability to why they stink against bad teams, that's the sort of thing that can be the poison fruit. That's the one thing that I think could hold them back is you've got to be able to look around and say, okay, what are we doing to get great for the regular season or for the playoffs? I'm not going to flip out over losing during the regular season unless there's some indicator that it could affect them in the playoffs. And Kyrie's attitude is always going to be that indicator. Listen, I know it's not a nice thing to say, but I am here for the chaos. I'm here for the content. I want a deep dive. I want people to dig in and find out what they're fighting about. I want to hear more from Kyrie making excuses and not being accountable because I like laughing at this whole situation because eh, it's just maybe not 
Maybe not cool to just have a bunch of stars come together and dominate. Maybe it's more cool and more interesting for them to implode. And we might get to see that. I don't know. No show for us tomorrow. Heat Rockets on ESPN Radio at 7 Eastern. We'll be back on Friday. Freddie and Fitzsimmons are coming up next. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.